This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 58. Recorded here on August 19, 2016. I'm your host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Buena Setti. Dr. Setti, welcome. Hello, thank you. It's good to have you here. And our longtime co-host, Dr. Neely Shaw. Neely, welcome again. Happy to be here. We are happy to welcome our guest today at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Dr. Damon Reed. Damon, thanks for being here. Uh, happy to be here. This is great. Yeah, so we really enjoyed your, your uh, presentation a few minutes ago to our group, so appreciate your coming up. Um, we're going to talk today about sarcomas, drug development, um, career development, all kinds of exciting stuff that I think um, will be really good for our, our audience to hear, no matter what their background. So as these guys know, I always start off with trying to probe your history, how you got to where you're at. Right now you're at... Uh, Moffitt Children Moffitt Cancer Center. Yes, Moffitt Cancer Tampa. Center in Tampa, Florida. Yes. Yeah, and you're the only pediatric oncologist there, almost one of two. Yeah, the one of two. Yeah, the only one that's doing stuff still. So tell us how you got there. My journey definitely started in all the formative years were in Ohio. So my first 26 years were were here in Ohio, and I, I've loved it. And uh, I went off to train at Boston and met my wife there, and uh, then went off to train at uh, Memphis. And uh, when I was looking for my first real job at 32, I um, looked around the country, and, and Florida and North Carolina were places that my wife and I both thought we could be happy living and, and starting our family or continuing our family. And so uh, that's how we looked down to that area. Uh, when I looked down in Florida, there was not as much academic jobs as as, um, as I was hoping. And so, uh, but Moffitt was a clear beacon of, of uh, academic oncology. That, that well, where'd you train? Where did, like where'd you go to school? And yep. what inspired you when you went to school to Go to medical school and that sort of thing. I would say that uh, I, even from when I was in like kindergarten, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, my mom named me after someone in the Bible that was a physician that didn't charge for his services, and so maybe she forced me to do it the whole time or something. <laughs> and have you fulfilled that um, mission, not charging for your services? I didn't fill out my billing form, so I also get trouble with administration. But. Uh, but, um, and then I, I always did like biology, math, sciences, and those sorts of things, and uh, was a biology major at the University of Dayton, at Kate, and I did start to work in a lab doing drug delivery systems and some rats. We pressed together a composite bone, and we were doing drug delivery systems for AZT, the, the HIV drug back then. I, I did like the idea of research, and I liked the idea of trying to uh, contribute to the field, not only just just learn about what was ongoing, and then uh, went to Case Western Reserve Medical School as well in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, uh, there you're mostly just learning, you know, uh, clinical care, and so not too much research occurred there. And then uh, over at Boston Children's in, in in Boston, definitely there was a lot of good role models in terms of uh, what a successful career in academic medicine was. There, however, was an indentured servitude that was implicit that um, that I that I could not draw myself to it, and so I went off to Memphis and St. Jude, and and there, um, equally um, awesome opportunities to get in the lab, and um, also an opportunity to afford a house and do uh, some other things in Memphis that I couldn't do in Boston. Hey, you've been to some great places. Were there any particular mentors along the way that inspired you in any? 
Yes, all along the way. They're the wonderful people. In high school, uh, Dr. Weiss was a, my physiology teacher and definitely my favorite teacher ever. Uh, Dr. P.K. Badge-Pai was a veterinarian that was working on those drug delivery systems and um, was my research mentor for my honors project at the University of Dayton. Um, it was fantastic. He died during my senior year, and I had a, a Robert Kearns stepped up and, and was, took over to help me write that that first like you know undergraduate thesis. Um in medical school, Michael Nieder always took me under his wing and uh, gave me mostly career advice and, and what to do and what not to do, and always would tell me very bluntly if I was making a dumb decision. And so, but I've consulted with him ever since. And he was the first doctor I ever saw a patient with, and so he's been. And he is the other pediatric oncologist at Moffitt Cancer Center now. And then in Boston, there's honestly probably too many people to mention, but I, you know, Holcomb Greer was certainly a model of excellence without a doubt. Um, there were researchers that were like Len Zahn and George Daly, who would come into rounds and just light it up and just, you know, you, you, they brought this, this questioning, this hypothesis, why do we do this? This sort of thing that was amazing. I mean, it was not super practical for like a resident who just wanted to get out of the hospital, but it was, but it was ultimately I look back at it. I appreciated the way they challenged us and, and took us uh, that way. There were so many fellows too. Mike Isakoff, Katie Jangway, um, and lots of other people who would, uh, who would, Spend the time when they didn't have to, like, uh, kind of uh, get me as a resident uh, excited about certain things. At St. Jude, again, there was oh, so many. I, I, would, I almost hesitate to name a name because I would leave someone out, but um, Carlos Rodriguez Galindo and uh, uh, Sherry Spuntz and Jeff Dillon, kind of, uh, Jeff Rudness were, there were so many models of excellent physician care. Mark Ajar would be another. And then Mike Dyer, my, the person I did my uh, two years of research with, is you know, still a hero, honestly. I think every person who does a lab, a dedicated lab thing, kind of pseudo-worships their, their PI, and I still probably feel that way about Mike Dyer. Now at uh, Moffitt, uh, one of my biggest mentors is, uh, internally, is Doug Lutzen, uh, an orthopedic oncologist, and more so because he just has given me this can-do attitude um, and opportunities, and, and they've been really helpful, and, and he's always believed in myself more than more than I have. Um, externally, Steve Lesnick has been a huge mentor uh, to help me get involved in the sarcoma community, and Richard Corlick has also been wonderful. I think one of the things that really drew me to the sarcoma community was, uh, and is, that everyone is so accessible. There's there's very little ego, and, and uh, very much an opportunity for people who want to try to contribute to get involved. Do you think that's the secret to success, is surround yourself with good people? I've been fortunate that good people have, have take, taken an interest in me, and I don't know why, but, uh, but it, it's happened. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that... Um, I don't know. I would have to, if I had a secret to if I look back and say what I, uh, maybe what has helped with my success is like uh, being naively optimistic. I really believe I can do stuff, and I failed so many times, but I seem to forget those and uh, just keep trying. Honestly, I don't think I've achieved much, but I keep trying. Oh, I think you achieved, you've achieved a lot. I mean, what you've reviewed today of all the stuff that you've done, you don't sell yourself short because <laughs> <laughs> you know being being uh, collegial, collaborative, bringing people together. Uh, you know, I think they're. There are, um, you know, different kinds of people in the world, right? And some that do their own thing and some that bring others together and some that can do both like yourself. So I think there's, there's a lot to be proud of, but we can get into some of that stuff later. But <laughs> one of the things that you started is the Sunshine Project. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Sunshine Project is about 25 years old and it's a, it was a, it was a foundation that supported some labs and then they wanted to do clinical trials and that's when it, the, uh, now it's called the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation 
spun off the Sunshine Project. So that in itself is about, you're right, about eight years old or so. The idea and the, the tagline is to, to bring more targeted, less toxic uh, therapies to kids. And uh, it started as a largely Florida consortium to try to do early phase trials. Uh, early phase trials, getting new drugs into kids, is currently in about 20 bases around the country through the national cooperative groups. And Florida, the third most populous state, didn't have that. And so some moms that had to travel to Alabama or, or further north to get trials, uh, you know, trying to say, like, why can't we do those things here? Um, again, this went through the orthopedic oncologist, really, for the first time. And, and he realized pretty quickly that while he had enthusiasm, he had none of the practical skills or time to, to really write trials or to kind of foster this through. And so uh, he handed it off to me in 2009. And so I've been, uh, I will say the first three years, we're just running into a lot of, of, of closed walls. But as we've slowly built something um, and being patient and kind of playing the long view, we've been able to add exciting sites like, like Nationwide. And what what about the Sunshine Project? Is um, what what are your hopes and dreams for it in terms of making a difference? Or um... yeah, I definitely want to be part of something that makes a difference in the care of, of any of the sarcoma or other patients that I, I sit across from day to day. And um, I would have to say that it, it took you know thousands of days and many years you know to kind of figure out where that might be. And the, and the Sunshine Project was the opportunity to have clinical trials available. But not until I really was able to spend a couple years hearing the no's and the why's behind the no's that I realized what we could actually fill, what need we can fill. And I think the thing that we can fill is the right-sized trial. A trial where you could ask a, maybe naively optimistic, but ask for a really big improvement and do it with a few patients. And I, and I got to have lunch with some of your fellows who have taken statistical courses and all those sorts of, sorts of things. I do not have the benefit of understanding stats much. And so there are times when I look at curves or results and I say, that's obviously important and I don't need a number behind it. If, if you can make a big difference in a couple patients, that's, that's enough. You don't need it, thousands of patients. And so I really kind of focused or revolved or kind of perseverated on uh, handfuls or two handfuls of patients in trials and, and then making a yes-no decision early. A lot of what you've done with, with the Sunshine Project is... Uh, investigator-initiated studies looking at novel uses of drugs. Sometimes that's a little bit of a black box for those of us who aren't actively involved in clinical trial. Can you walk through how does an idea for uh, a drug combination go from an investigator starting it to, you know, are you the one talking with the drug companies? Is it uh, coordinated through the FDA, particularly if a drug is still under FDA protection? Uh, you know, how, can, can you march that through? And, and also with the context that, you know, it's not only clinicians who are our audience, but also for families, so they can understand a little bit more, like, why why sometimes these drugs take a little bit longer to, to get to them. Good. I, I've tried to think of this question from sitting in the multiple areas of the, of the uh, people invested in this. So as a patient who's just heard from their doctor that there's nothing else I can do, and there's nothing else to benefit, the amount of data that that patient would require, especially an adult patient, in order for a trial to be written would be scant. If there's a whiff of activity, please put me on it because I don't want to go home with nothing. From a lab researcher's perspective, sometimes the threshold for when they feel comfortable, you know, if they feel like, well, I'm giving this to mice or I'm putting this on a dish, and I'm, sometimes they, that person has a very low threshold. Like, again, any whiff of it should be a trial. But equally occurring is that that same person, that researcher, feels the bar should be much higher. Like they don't believe, they're very, you know, scientists are taught to be skeptical. And so they would say, yeah, this is promising. 
but then assay number two, and then three, and then four, and then mice, and then dogs, and then monkeys, and like uh, innumerable months of steps before they feel comfortable saying this should become a trial. And the clinical trialist is in between, and I, I have found at least that the, the threshold for activity is probably at the gut level and enthusiasm. And so they're looking at what the existing landscape is, what, what else might be on the cusp of happening, and then they have to commit to the trial. But when, in, uh, certainly in our rare trials, when you're opening a trial, you're really expecting that that's the next three, four years what you're kind of committing those patients to. So we've had ideas that came up from the Sunshine Project. So for my lab, we have a couple two drug combinations that have more than a whiff of activity, but no mouse data. And the gut reaction of the, of the principal investigators in the Sunshine Project is we cannot do a trial without any animal data. And at the same time, acknowledging that animal data is not necessarily the gold standard, but it's, it's a box that sometimes needs to be checked. So that seems to be the threshold. So I would say that in order for it all to align, what you typically need is a champion at almost all the levels. You need like a champion from the lab that says, I believe this will happen and I've done the work and here are some figures that really enable people to believe that. You have to have a passionate PI. If we have good clinical data, but the, the PIs don't believe it, they won't even mention it to the patients and that's an unsuccessful trial. And then you have to, and this is where I think is the hardest, we don't have a lot of ideas that would meet patients' expectations for what a trial would do. You know, the idea would be that whiff of activity would actually lead to the, my child or myself being cured. And most of the time, the clinicians and the researchers know that this might move the bar a little bit, or, uh, and they hope that it will move the bar a little bit. And studies are designed to pick up on a 10% difference and things like that. And so it is hard. I think that... Um, in the last eight years, there's been one opportunity where I think that it, it, there is an amazing amount of preclinical data. I'm more enthused than I've ever been, and and, I, and patients are too. And so they just don't happen very often. I think it's, it is the ideas and that opportunity that is the, the, the missing piece overall, because this is fundamentally hard work. So it's impressive work that you've done so far, and I think it's been excellent to be a part of uh, the, the great Sunshine Project team. So just for you know, for institutions that are involved with Sunshine Consortium and investigators that are in these institutions, what kind of infrastructure do you have in place? In other words, what kind of work do they have to have done individually before they come to you or your team with a proposal or a project? And what can be done within the Sunshine group itself? So far, it has been, uh, in order to add a site, I think that they, the ideal thing is that the site brings an idea and a trial. And that's happened with a couple sites already. Um, equally important is that a, a site will bring accruals. And so there are certainly the first six sites that we had was, was just how I inherited it. But anyone that we've added since that site, nationwide included, are all sites that have, that have brought the real power to accrue, a new geography. And all of them, every single one of our 14 sites have enthusiastic PIs, PIs that prioritize it. I, there's, I've made no bones about it at Moffitt that, that my priority is the subject project. And so when they've talked about other things, building programs, other things, they say, this is, this is number one, and then yes, I'll do these other things. That's from my perspective, but it's someone at the other sites that will have it high on their priorities. And, and I think that's what's helped us grow is that, um, that there is enthusiastic PIs, and there is a belief, in it, and we've backed it up with some actual projects now, where the principal investigators are are not all at Tampa. They're all, they've been, in fact, they've all been at different sites so far. And how, where does the money come from? None of this is easy. None of this is cheap. Yeah. Um, it costs a lot of money to do preclinical work like you're doing. It costs a lot of money to enroll patients, especially in a multi-institutional consortium. So who, who do we owe thanks to? It's the board of the Pediatric Cancer Foundation, without a, now, now the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation. And so um, 
by and large, these are people with ties to the Tampa area that are, are businessmen and women. And, and by and large, it's like the local, the local entrepreneurs. And they, um, the, this was, they all have rallied around the founder, Melissa Helms's call. And Melissa had a, a child with Wilms Tumor who was fortunately doing well now in their mid-20s. But Melissa has been super passionate about the fact that there is missing things in pediatric cancer. And there is a gap that needs to be filled in this sized organization and these sized institutions forming together and doing things. She, um, she believes that, uh, writing off a check to some of the larger institutions around the country is, is, doesn't get it done. And so they are, it's, it's a group of people that light up when I throw up a pathway and when I, when I say here's what the, what the things are. They light up when I say I just gave out a $200,000 grant and they say that's great. We're going to go raise that $200,000 right now. And, after the first two years when I had not had a trial written, I felt like, you know, I don't know what a board does, but they, I think they're probably going to fire me. Like, I don't even know, but I don't even know if they really employ me, so I don't know how this all works. But um, they said, we see your effort, and they started, like, doubling the fundraising. And so I don't know how they do it, but they do it by coming to me with questions that they can tell donors, and they do a good job of, of understanding where the money goes. They do a good job of paying attention where the money goes, visiting and checking in often, too. And so... I think that a combination of transparency and a group that already existed that had a passionate cause that we've aligned to, it's kind of nice when lay people have the same vision that scientists do. And how and much money are we talking about? Well, how big of an effort is it? What The most recent contract that they signed was for $1.5 million per year for the next five years. And so, and over the last eight years, it's been, over the last six years since I inherited it, it's something around $5 million. So it's, a, it'll be a $12, 15000000 million over 10 years or 15 years, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair chunk of change, and it's uh, very impressive. Unfortunately, yes. It's, it's a good thing to be able to try to use wisely, but it's... Right. It should be enough to make a difference. Yes, it, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it gives me an ulcer, yes. Uh, it's a good ulcer, yeah. And it, it's, it is, um, it is uh, too much for me to use all myself, and that's, why it's, again, why it's, it, collaboration's the way to go. And... Are there things that you see that are coming down the pike that you could have alluded to once that are getting making you excited to test in patients particular diseases or particular drugs or inhibitors or what can we have some hope here? I think there's lots of hope. I, I think there's lots of hope, and I I wouldn't be able to continue my job if I didn't believe that. And uh, again, others even that I work with say you're just naive and you're too optimistic, and I tell them that if it's not heartfelt. It is heartfelt, but if you don't think it's heartfelt, it, it, just think of it as a defense mechanism because I could not deal with this reality for another two decades. Like it would be, it would not be a job that I would definitely sign up for. And so, um, it is the hope that keeps me going for sure. There are huge discoveries that are, that are being made. And I think there are technologies when I go to the AACR meeting, the, the more basic science research meeting. I think there are things that are, could be very easily applied to sarcoma. I don't know how to do them, but once people do, do them with sarcoma, I do think that we'll tease out how to turn on and off genes for translocation and induce sarcomas. So sarcomas that have one break in DNA where the DNA is stitched together in the incorrect way, I think that we're going to have better drugs uh, for those because the biology is pretty much riding on that one change. And I think people are doing a better job of finding small molecules to, to address that change. You know, it's funny because when you think about drug development or chemotherapy for cancer, Pediatrics led the way early on, right? Dana, uh, you know, Sydney yes. Farber, first chemo drugs, uh, first sort of cures with ALL and St. Jude, total 
cancer care. Yep. Um, first clinically now, relevant biomarkers. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of first, but I think I, I'm curious to see what your opinion is. But I think we're falling way behind the adults, and you know there. Multiple new drugs approved for different adult indications of other cancers. Lots of immunotherapies going on that are approved. You know, we have one antibody yeah. in pediatrics. So, and I think uh, probably because it's the accrual numbers and uh, the gap is widening, it, in my opinion. So, how do we stem that? What you talked a little bit, you're, you're talking about some approaches to to trim the streamline things, to trim it down. To how do we accelerate our pace and start to catch back up? Yeah, that's a great question. So if I was um, if I was in charge nationally of who became pediatric oncologists, I guess I would. I think we're a little bit complacent with the fact that the generation before me, a pediatric oncologists, did a great job. And it is okay to enter pediatric oncology and say, "I'm going to take care of patients and I'm not going to do any research." And I don't think that was the previous generation. I think the previous generation was, "This is a horrible disease, and I'm going to make it better." And so I think that. The more MD PhDs we hire, the more we kind of invest in research. The, the the better we'll do. So that I think, so so get the right people in place. What about structurally or administratively or regulatory wise or expectations, statistics? Yeah, you that's know, good. Good. Uh, I get that. Yes. Yeah. So for example, the standard uh, phase two study in, in adult care is assignment. To, it's two-stage design. You know, put on somewhere between 14 and 19 patients, and if you see what you want to see, go expand to 59. And when you approach a decision and say, we don't have 59 patients, like it, it, that's going to take 10 years, they say, well, then you can't do research. And that's, but that's not true. I think that if you're looking for big enough differences, you could do research. I think that um, we're sometimes accused as pediatric oncologists of always following protocols. But if we really did follow the same care across the country and we really did limit the the off-label and just kind of random use of things, especially in relapse, I think we would have more patients that would be available. We could do trials faster. I think that our desire to help people and try as hard as we possibly can sometimes gets in our own way, and it leads to us using agents that we know in our heart aren't perfect, and it precludes someone who might have a trial idea open somewhere else. I think that the more we use modern technology to be able to find all those trials, which clinicaltrials.gov is excellent at that, and the more we continue to network and get to know each other and meet each other at all these meetings and facilitate and share patients, I think that uh, we could do research faster. I think right now the biggest the biggest problem in pediatric oncology is patients receiving second, third, fourth line therapy off protocol. I think that's the biggest problem. Let's change gears a little bit. So one of the other hats that you wear is uh, um, one of the leaders of the Young Investigator Program through COG. Uh, mentorship is clearly as... as Benefited you significantly, and you clearly give back a lot as well. For that next generation that's coming through, and then I'll, I'll try to focus the, uh, pool for you a little more. For the fellows who want to have an academic career, what's the one thing that you wish someone would have told you when you're at that point? I definitely, when I took a job, it was 100% clinical, and I told people I wanted to do research, and everyone told me, don't do that. And, and they were right. I mean, that was, a, that was not the job for me. I was told by my PI, I would rather you do no research at all than bad research. And it was a very intimidating statement, but that was the last thing that he, that was the last meeting I had with him. And, uh, and it was frightening. So when I had an opportunity to do research again, I was just like, oh my goodness. I gotta, and like, I actually emailed him a couple of times and said, is this good enough? Like, you know, like, is, this, is this okay? And he's like, it feels me. It's okay. And so, um, but it, you know, everyone can't have an academic job, unfortunately. I think that, 
advice I would have to say is read Simone's maxims, read uh, Dr. Lee's article in JCO about academic medicine, and do a real soul searching. I could not, I'm academic-ish. I am not the classic 80-20 person. I've never had R funding or K funding or any of those sorts of things. I'm philanthropy funded. I dabble in or work hard at adolescent and adult oncology, phase one trials, and um, pediatric sarcomas and, and adult sarcomas. And I would have been told and was told all along the way, no one can do that. That's not possible. And so I kind of dabble a little bit. So the academic model is that Dr. Lee paper, and it's 60 hours a week, and it's, you know, writing grants before you come in. And, and we have a running joke at Moffitt of, like, this club of people that come in on the weekends, and we do. And, like, you know, there's, there is a lot of work that goes into it. I could, I've had many talks with my wife, wife about, is this okay? And she's, she's an enabler. She lets me work. She <laughs> not, so it's those sorts of things that would be, if you really want to do it, it's not pleasant. It is a bit thankless. I mean, these kind of coming here for a talk, it's like, it's a joyous occasion and it's fun and it's fun to think about things, but you never stop and do that day to day. You just kind of keep work and, and you never leave work without thinking about it. You rarely go to bed without thinking about it. It's just the truth of academic medicine. And so, we need people that want to do that, and we need people to find the niche to fill and to do all those sorts of things. I don't know how many people there are, though. I mean, I, I honestly worry about that. I mean, I, I, sometimes I worry that I'm, I'm not doing things right. You know, like, why am I doing all this stuff? Like, you know, sometimes you wonder. I don't know if that's a good or encouraging answer, <laughs> so that's, that's the only thing I want to say as I look at everybody's face, but it, it's... Um, I think it is hard, and I don't think that it would be hard to relate to people how, how hard it is. And um, I think people intuitively get it. Pediatric cancer is tough, but then they forget it immediately after that. And if you're at a party, no one wants to talk to you. Uh, but if you're in the hospital and go to the administration, they don't, eh, you're just like any other doctor, you know? There's some different, different That's things. That's right. That's yeah. right. So what's really impresses me is that, you know, you're a pediatric oncologist working at an adult cancer center. And um, I think, you know, with the similar solid tumor interest in the patient population, there's a lot of work that can be done in, like, AYA young adult population. So for a fellow or a young um, clinician working at a children's hospital, what are some of the ways they can integrate that into their career? Yeah, I think that um, it helps a ton when you're at the university of some state and everything is in the same building and pediatrics is on the floor, I think. And and the people are being paid by the same place and the same IRB and the same clinical trial office. And all the, the, that helps a lot. And if people are fortunate in, in that situation, they should meet regularly with their medical oncology counterparts. And I think that they should discuss projects that would be mutually beneficial in that AYA space where one's the first author, one's the last author, one secures funding and one does the majority of the writing. Something where everyone feels like they're contributing. We have definitely built our AYA program on research and collaborative projects where I have gotten the, the money and an idea. I've met someone halfway who also has that idea or likes that idea and we work together. And, and, and that has been great because it's always forged upon that is many meetings and many things of that nature. And so if someone's young and they want to get involved, medical oncologists are great people and they're not scary and there are many misunderstandings that happen along the way. But if your heart's in the right place, I think it goes okay. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing when I jumped into an adult oncology. I didn't realize the ramifications, but they've been largely good. But I was definitely forced not to be that pediatric oncologist that walks in and says, I can do better than all of you because I don't have the best filter in the world, but I knew never get out of this room alive like and, I, and these are my colleagues like there's no way that's how I'm going to start things well you are in a very unique position uh, we didn't have much we made it clear to our listeners that 
you know, you're seeing a lot of it. Most of your practice, it sounded like yep. 80% is ADS, 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 young adult, yes. sarcomas. And a huge volume. I mean, the numbers that you talk about that you see are staggering to, to those of us at an academic center that have what, in comparison, is sort of a small niche right. practice. I mean, you're seeing 100 new sarcoma patients a year. Like you said, to an adult uh, oncologist, not that many, but yep. to a pediatric, that's <laughs> like ghastly. <laughs> so, so um, what, what, are, what are some of the comparisons between the way the adult, or I should say medical oncology, because we're all adults, <laughs> but the medical oncology uh, arena works, the culture, um, the, the nature of the beast, of, you know, working in that kind of setting compared to a pediatric setting? And to add on to that specifically, why do you think they accrue so fewer patients as a percentage to trials than we do? The easiest one is probably the, the accrual percentages are so much lower because so few patients actually in the adult world actually make it to an academic center or a place that has a trial open. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many of them are being treated in the community. When they come to an academic center, I think that um, the success in antibody and checkpoint inhibitor therapy had had made it such that cancer centers were accruing a obscene amount of patients the last four or five years, and all of them have seen a 30%, 40% overall cancer center reduction because those trials, have, all of those things are FDA approved. So when I think you could follow the accrual rates of major cancer centers and figure out if there's a boom of exciting therapies, you, know, you could really you could do that. So when there's something that works, yes, the community sends it to the academic hospital, uh, lines wait uh, you know, four or five weeks to be able to see the oncologist, Everyone fighting over trials, coordinators putting on 17 patients a week, you know, things like that. It's, it is, it is boom and, and, and bust, but then there's, there's other times when there's not, not very many trials available. The other question was about adult oncology. And so it is true without a doubt that if I saw 20 patients a year instead of 100 patients a year, I would have more time to spend with them. And so the scope of what you can do is less because you have less time. And I think I'm fortunate at Moffitt to be protected enough that I do not do the, uh, carry the same workload as the medical oncologist in my practice, in in, at my cancer center. And I am somewhat protected because I am this goofball, lone pediatric oncologist who doesn't see enough patients, but sees too many at, at, at the pediatric hospital. And so, um, I think I'm left alone to, to spend a little bit more time. I'm probably the only doctor in the, besides the transplant doctors at Moffitt who see the patient the first time with my nurse and the social worker in the room. I'm probably much less likely to get involved with, there's no school issues to, to, to talk about. There's no letters for gym class skipping. There's no, a lot of stuff. Disability forms are not handled by me. It goes to the disability office. There's a, there is an expectation that I'm going to talk to the patient about chemotherapy and why to give it or not to give it and when to get scans and answer their questions. And the scope of practice is so much narrower. At the, and that's what I think allows for that. I sometimes miss getting to know the names of their brothers and sisters and dogs and all that sort of stuff, uh, but I do like when the family is there. I've had questions from oncologists that essentially boil down to, how do you get the mom and dad to leave the room so that they don't ask so many questions? And I have answered that in, I view the parents as an asset to the young adult, and they cannot believe that that's the answer. And so I try to teach them certain ways that I get everyone on the same page, and things, things of that nature. And, and I've gotten good feedback from the medical oncologist about that, so they've changed their, their attitudes on that. So it is true that the medical oncologist just tends to want to get in there, get the facts done, get things communicated, and, and get moving in it. There's not a ton wrong, wrong with that. Well, it's great that you're in a position where you can bring the best of both worlds together. Trying to, yeah. Most of us 
we it's, it's mutually exclusive. We don't practice in an adult center. The adults don't practice in a pediatric environment or culture. And, and so I think we've well separately diverged quite a bit over the years. And we do have different needs and pressures and so forth, so a lot of it's natural. But it sounds like you're able to pick and choose from some of them. So far, so good. I always wonder if it will all fall yeah. apart. And we should note for anybody listening that, that you do still have a, a once-a-week practice or so at, at all children's hospitals, so you do see pediatric patients. Yes, and, absolutely. And those who have children uh, in the younger ages can, can access you and your expertise at, at, through that hospital as well. So I think we'll wrap it up now. Um, it's been a great conversation. Love having you here. We wish you all the best, and thanks, Neelay, for co-hosting. Thanks, Bhuvana, for co-hosting, and and thanks for uh, being willing to speak your mind. Uh, Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team is Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, the director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.